You're listening to the Permaculture Princess Podcast. This is episode number 24. Today, I'm introducing you to someone who has been on my podcast wishlist since the day I published my first podcast. Julie Obradovic is a teacher, a writer, and an advocate. She has spent almost 20 years in education and more than 10 years advocating for families and children affected by autism. Her work has been featured in the Autism File magazine, Grand Magazine, the Age of Autism blog, and a number of other publications. I first encountered Julie when I started to do my research on vaccines. I was a new mother and I was navigating the intense vaccine schedule as suggested by my doctors. A chiropractor we were seeing at the time who I respect highly gave me her book, An Unfortunate Coincidence, and her memoir had a great impact on my research journey. Now, I am a pretty transparent person, and I fully recognize this podcast to be one of the more controversial podcasts I have ever released. However, even if only for the opportunity to hear another person's journey, I implore you to listen with open ears. My goal in sharing this interview is purely to share a well-researched and difficult perspective, while also honoring the lives of Julie and her family. While vaccines can be a sobering topic, I believe it is appropriate for the times we are living in and should be openly and freely discussed. So buckle up, friends, and get ready to meet Julie Obradovic. I believe that permaculture design is found not only in landscapes and vegetation, but in all of life. I believe the scriptures in John 10.10 where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. My friends call me Drea, and as a certified personal trainer and health coach, I created this podcast to be a platform for sharing education about edible landscaping, plant-based nutrition, home remedies, and all things fitness. Here's to a more abundant life. So welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This is a really great surprise, and I'm very honored, actually. Um, I'm always happy to talk about this, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and I do want to just start out by mentioning, I know we are recording this during just a crazy time during the COVID-19 quarantine and we are still technically quarantined, as the, although some people are kind of trying to branch out. It's just such an interesting um, time in history. But I do want to ask, how is your family doing? We're all doing very, very well. Um, none of us have been affected, thankfully, um, other than you know our lifestyle. Um, none of us have have lost employment. Um, my children are healthy, you know. So, all things considered, we're very blessed. Um, you know, it's inconvenient, but we're actually doing just fine. So, so we're good. Thank you. Yeah, and and I also just wanted to thank you. Um, you hadn't mentioned, but you're a teacher, so you are especially uh, inconvenienced, if you will, at, during this time. Like you had to change your entire curriculum to navigate. Yes, so. yes. I am actually I'm a high school teacher, um, and I primarily serve right now in the role of division chair for my high school. So I do teach one class, but primarily I'm in charge of five different departments, world language, fine arts, business, et cetera. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a learning curve for everyone. It's been so intense. Um, I'm so proud of all of the educators that I know, not just at this current district where I am, but 
everywhere. Um, I've never seen such amazing work in such a, a, a short amount of time. I mean, it's really, really been remarkable, very inspiring. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. So I recognize (laughs) that when you write a memoir, it probably feels strange that other people know your story without you knowing them. And so I I can relate because I was on a reality show in college and every once in a while people would act like they were a good friend of mine because they knew (laughs) my story, they knew my background. And that's how I feel to you. I feel like I know your story. (laughs) I feel like I know a little bit of your background, but um, I do want you to introduce yourself for my audience. Where are you from? What are you passionate about? What are you up to today? Okay. So as you mentioned, um, I am a teacher. I live in the Chicago suburbs and pretty much born and raised in the South or Southwest suburbs of Chicago. Um, I'm a mother of three. My children are 22, 19, and almost 16. Um, I've been teaching for over 20 years at the high school level, and I am very passionate not only about autism, but um, medical freedom, um, the, the epidemic of children's chronic health conditions that are plaguing uh, this generation in a way that's never happened before, and especially on the front lines as a teacher, just recognizing that and, and trying to do whatever I can to help curve that. And then uh, I run and, you know, I, I, I love to write, which is how this whole book happened. I'm not a professional writer. Um, that's a, a different story in and of itself. Uh, but that's been really one of my greatest outlets in, in being able to deal with everything that happened over the last two decades. Yeah, I maybe that's why I felt like we understood each other because I'm also a writer and to be able to put your emotions, your thoughts down is um, is a talent and it, it really affects the people reading those words. So I appreciate that you became a writer for, <laughs> for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'll be honest, I read your book three years ago and I've been loaning mm-hmm. it out since then. And as I sat down to try to find my highlighted portions, which is what I do if somebody's written a book and I want to ask them questions, I realized I don't remember who currently has it. So I don't have the book in front of me and I have to figure out who has it. But um, I would like you to set up your story for us. What was your experience with your daughter and vaccines? I know that this is this is something that you've obviously shared. And I love that you write that it wasn't a straightforward cause and effect, but that there were a number of factors. And it feels cold to even say these words, knowing the extent of your story. But could you give us a brief overview? Sure, sure. Um, So for starters, just kind of an overview of, of the book and the purpose of the book was, was really just that I recognized I, I kind of joined this issue, this, um, this quest for answers about what had happened to my daughter around 2004, 2005. And I recognized about five years into it that I was living this extremely unique episode of American history, of, of world history, actually, where there was for the first time this community of parents that were um, confronting, if you will, the medical establishment on what they were suggesting had happened to our children when our own experience had been so vastly different. And so part of what I had done initially and how I even got a book deal was I started blogging and sharing my, my experience. And back in the day, that was just a Yahoo group. Um, that was, you know, we didn't have Facebook. It sounds so long ago, but I mean, it, we, it was a very different world. And, 
And so it started there. And then I was invited to start formally presenting um, what I was sharing um, in a blog. And then I got well recognized within the community from there. And then I was approached uh, by a publisher who happened to have a ch- an affected child of his own. And so it wasn't the traditional, you know, trajectory, if you will, of how you, how you get a book deal. But all along the way, I just felt very passionately that I wanted to capture and humanize at least one story along the way about how this happened, how somebody could question vaccines who had never questioned them, um, and how they could, um, how how the, how this was being defined, if you will, to society at large by the by the other side versus what was really happening in my life. There was such a disconnect between what was being reported. Um, on the news and in magazines and in, in scientific studies versus what I had experienced. And that's really what the whole goal was, was just, okay, well, they've had their chance to tell their story. I just want the world to know what mine is um, and that I'm not crazy and that this is what happened. And so, and I also, like you said, I, I wanted to make it clear that for the vast majority of us, there wasn't a, this linear, acute, specific moment where our child got one vaccine and they were gone. That certainly has happened to people. That was not my experience. Um, My experience was much more gradual, as you know, from reading the book. And my research and living this and going through all of this led me to realize that I may never have the answer on exactly what happened, but it, it certainly appeared that there were a number of things that lined up whether it was genetic vulnerability, susceptibility, whether it was heavy metals that I had been carrying as a a pregnant woman, all kinds of things that lined up for a perfect storm that inevitably manifested in such a way in my child. But that was the whole point was I just wanted to say, okay, well, you know, but this is what happened to us. Take it or leave it. This is what happened. And this is, this is what I've been able to discern is the most logical explanation for what happened. Absolutely. I can, I can so relate to you wanting to share a single experience, but recognizing that it is the experience of many people because mothers are closest to their babies, right? Like you're the one with your child. You're the master of your child. You know your child better than anybody else. And so I think that it's especially important. It's like as if anybody's listening and is a mother, is a parent, is somebody that has to make decisions for young children, you are the master of that being, you know, like you know them best. And that is, I think, one of the biggest messages in your book where you were you were really day in and day out listening to your your daughter in this case and you know trying to understand what was going on in her mind trying to understand what was going on in her body and i think that it's it's silly for us to think oh a doctor that we see periodically can tell me better right and so one of the parts of your book that really triggered my new mother heart was how the doctors initially tried to question your affection for your daughter um, I've actually heard this from others as well as if you know early on it, there was kind of this theory that not showing enough physical attention or love leads to autism symptoms can you explain the thinking behind this theory and how detrimental it can be and if this is still happening so I hope it's not still happening. I, I can say at least um, as a positive, as a result of the epidemic, if there is such a thing, is that 
that theory has largely been relegated to the garbage bin. I don't know if we've actually taken the garbage out, which is how I like to explain to people, but I do think it's finally in the garbage bin. Um, yes, there's a really, really logical and sad explanation for why it happened. It's all historical. Um, there was a man named Dr. Leo Connor, who was from Austria, who uh, immigrated to the United States in, I want to say, late 20s, 30s, um, who had been studying child psychiatry. And he published a book in the 1930s that was well over 600 pages long, where he had uh, chronicled and and detailed all of the known childhood psychiatric disorders um, of mankind at the time. And it was so well received that he ended up getting a position as the head of childhood psychiatry at John Hopkins University. Um, so a few years later, a number of families started presenting to him from across the United States that he ended up writing these words, and I'm going to paraphrase, I used to know it by heart, um, but something along the lines of since 1938, a number of children have come to me whose condition has uh, differed so remarkably from anything presented heretofore that each case merits and I hope receives a detailed examination of its fascinating peculiarities. I can't believe I remember that. Um, but that is, that is what he said. And the reason, and that's actually been the crux of the issue, uh, believe it or not, because if that man was right, and he was 50 years old at the time, and he was the world's leading authority on childhood psychiatry who had just published a book a handful of years prior to making that extraordinary statement in a journal that was not just him saying that, that was published in a journal in 1943. If he was right, it meant autism was new. And that is what he was saying. He was, he was absolutely saying, something strange is happening here. I've had these 11 kids show up at my door. I've never seen this before. We need to look at this. I don't know what's going on here. And the reason that matters is because there's, if it's new, something in the environment had to cause it. Something changed in the 1930s that was manifesting in a way that was presenting itself in children to a man who was 50 years old, lived on multiple continents, and was the world's leading authority to say, I've never seen this before. We also know there's no such thing as a genetic epidemic, um, and therefore it has to be environmentally caused. Nonetheless, when, when that happened, we were still, as a society, um, reconciling Freudian theory and Freudian ideas. And it was very much alive at the time. And you can look back through Dr. Connor's um, archives, and you can see he wasn't a huge Freudian fan. He really wasn't. But the remnants of the idea that your parents, especially your mother, could have such a profound effect on you mentally was very real at the time. And one of the things that he noticed as he was taking notes on the 11 cases that had presented to him was there was something very unique about all of these cases. And that was that these were extremely intelligent, affluent for the most part, well-educated, working parents, including the mothers. And that was extremely unusual for the 30s and 40s. So you're talking about some of these women actually being in medicine themselves. In fact, the one of the very first cases is... Um, a woman named Elizabeth Peabody Trevitt. And Elizabeth Peabody Trevitt was a doctor, a pediatrician, who's actually responsible for inventing the well baby visit and is on record as saying a child cannot be vaccinated early enough or often enough with the DPT vaccine. And it was her child who presented 
to, <laughs> to Dr. Connor as one of the very first 11 cases in the world. Uh, nonetheless, what he looked at, instead of, and this is, I believe, where history went wrong, instead of what looking, looking at what the parents worked with, and again, overwhelmingly, the parents were scientists and doctors and psychiatrists. And lo- instead of looking at what they worked with, what they could expose to, he simply extrapolated that the parents worked and that it was their working and their love of their career over the love of their children that was causing these children to turn inwards and care for themselves. And the word autism is actually from a Greek word that means something along those lines, like to turn inward into yourself. So it was basically his theory that instead that he just said, well, these are very highly educated, scientifically minded moms. Um, and they just don't, they haven't bonded with their children. And that stuck. And initially he was pretty nice about it. He was not suggesting these were terrible moms or anything like that. He was just saying, we think that these kids are picking up that they're not a priority in their children's lives. But by the 1960s, that theory had really taken off in a very dangerous direction. And there was a researcher named Bruno Bettelheim. And Bruno Bettelheim was out of the University of Chicago. And he took it much further. Bruno Bettelheim said, no, 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 no. This isn't just that mothers aren't bonding with their children because they like their careers more. This is that mothers hate their children and they want to kill their children subconsciously and that their children realize it. And they're so terrified that they have become mute and they are just in their own worlds. And he actually would um, have children um, do terrible things. They would make like a, a replica of the mom, like a statue, not to, you know, not to scale or anything like that, but they would have some sort of symbol of the mother and have the child kick it and throw things at it and try to expel the hatred for their mother that had done this to them. And He was taken so seriously that in 1967, he published a book called The Empty Fortress. Think about that title, The Empty Fortress. And it was all about mothers of children with autism, how they they did this to their children with their subconscious desire to kill their children. Um, And it was actually the New York Times summer pick for the summer read. So that was in 1967. So wasn't until the 1980s that there was another third very prominent autism researcher who happened to be a father of a child that was affected named Dr. Bernard Rimland. And Dr. Bernard Rimland, thank God for him, he went, "Uh uh-uh, this is ridiculous. I know my wife. I've seen her with this child. She doesn't want to subconsciously kill him. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And he was single-handedly responsible for changing the paradigm. But that took a really long time. And so it wasn't until, like, for example, Bruno Bettelheim, as recently as 1981, had a quote, and again, I'm paraphrasing, along the lines of, I've been so lucky uh, to work with children my whole life whose mothers hated them. I mean, that was 1981. And so after Rain Man came out in 1989, which Bernard Rimland was actually responsible for helping very, very much with that movie, then we started to see a little bit of a change. And it was also right around the early 90s. In fact, it was the early 90s where the explosion in the disorder began. That's That's precisely when the epidemic began was in 1989. And 
with the number of children that were being affected and the number of mothers that were now pretty savvy, you know, post-feminist generation educated women, that wasn't going to fly anymore. These were not women that were going to go, oh yeah, you're right. I actually just want to kill my child. And that's why they're not talking. Like that was so obnoxious and so ridiculous. But you still had a generation of doctors, and this is what happened to me, I very firmly believe, that as recently as the early 2000s, maybe they were on their way out into retirement, but they're in their 60s. And you have to remember, if they're in their 60s, you know, they grew, they, they grew up in the medical field, if you will, that this was what happened. You're, you know, if you had a child present to you with autism, not only was it extremely rare, but this was a really bad mom. Um, and therefore, I do believe that that was uh, in large part responsible for why many mothers like myself experienced that. Um, now, I believe, like I said, with the amount of children that have been affected and the time that has gone by, um, I do believe that that's very unusual that somebody would experience that anymore. However, they've just changed the the blame of the mother. That's the sad part. It's only evolved. So while it's great that, okay, yay, I'm no longer a homicidal. <laughs> oh, um, that's, that's great. And okay, great. It's not that I'm a working mother because wow, you know, you know, how, how often have we heard that? Um, now it's that my genes are bad, you know? So now it's not that I was flawed emotionally. It's that I'm a flaw. I'm flawed genetically. And there's also these theories that I'm flawed in my picking of a mate that I have chosen. There's the geek theory um, that I, I, you know, I chose uh, a very nerdy man to be married to. And there's the theory that we're all depressed. Um, there, it goes on and on and on. It's all they're doing is moving the goalposts. They're still blaming the moms, particularly. They're starting to loop in the dads a little bit more, not as much, but they're primarily still blaming the moms just in a different way. It's still our fault. That is wild. You articulated that journey so beautifully. I hope that gives people an idea of what you do in your book because it it really is such a a journey. And if you dig far enough and you go back into this, I I so appreciated that you talked about the environmental cause, you know, things from the outside coming in. Like and and even that you said yeah, there's a lot of doctors that disagree on these things and they're looking at it from different perspectives. It just, it gives me goosebumps over here because it's, I can't imagine what you went through and I apologize. I'm, I'm so glad that you're on this side of it and that you have recognized the idiocy in that, but I just feel so deeply for any mom who has felt that weight of wondering, sure. you know, it's, like it's, wondering. It's horrible. And, and for anybody listening, honestly, um, without oversimplifying everything, this is a very simple controversy. For over 80 years, the medical community has pointed their fingers at mothers and said, you caused a mental condition in your child. And all that happened in the last 20 years is a really group of uh, an educated, empowered, savvy group of moms turned around and said, uh, the hell we did. You caused a medical condition in mine. That's it. That's all this, that's, that's all this fight is about is did, did moms cause a mental condition or did doctors cause a medical condition? And imagine being the moms without the power to fund the science to be able to combat their side. 
it's it's so uneven. It's so unbalanced in terms of being able to make our argument. Um, but that is that is really what this boils down to. Is autism a mental condition caused by mothers, or is autism a medical condition caused in large part by doctors in the environment? And I know what I lived. And you know, I one of the reasons, Julie, that I wanted to invite you to tell your story. Now you're not like, and we'll talk about. Well, I'll probably mention this a couple times. You're not a doctor. Neither am I. We're not coming from a perspective of being able to recommend how people navigate their health. But what we are suggesting is that people discuss it. Is that there's discourse about it, and that we we listen to each other and hear what the other one has to say because we have to be able to have a conversation about it and we have to be able to look at everything that's laid before us without getting super <laughs> rambunctious if you will you know sometimes we have to be able to, to oh yes hard time, you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's controversial to say the least to take any position on this people get very 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 upset so um, that is the most important thing is to be able to have some sort of dialogue without um, people getting offended and angry and name calling. But unfortunately, that's challenging to do. Mm-hmm. Now, something I appreciated about your book was that it was not simply a woe is me tale. You found things to be grateful for amidst the struggles. So one part that stood out to me was the way that you were able to see your daughter's brain connecting dots, such as with the Little Mermaid sleeping bag. That is a story that Stan, that <laughs> I can't forget. Uh, these are spe- special moments. Could you either share this story or another story that show your daughter thinking more clearly or overcoming some of the toxicity overload? Because I think sharing these types of stories can be so beneficial to parents who are in the swings of understanding autism or dealing with special needs in general. Sure, sure. Um, so I talk about it a lot in the book and and I would say this to my friends and family all the time. Um, before I felt more healed, if you will, from all of this, which I, which I do now, I feel like I'm in a much greater place of peace with all of it. And, and that comes with time. You can't force that. Um, but at the time, I, I felt like, and I still do at times, that I constantly um, was in flux and vacillating between gratitude and greed. That my, that my whole experience was gratitude and greed. I was so grateful in one breath for any evidence of, say, imaginary play, uh, a three-word sentence, um, just looking me in the eyes, whatever it was. I mean, these moments are just euphoric. You're so elated. And, and within seconds, you want more. Oh, gosh, you just want more. And so you, you, you go right back down to a place of greed and, and just um, that hunger to get more and more and more. And it's a very difficult existence, to be honest with you. Um, but again, that's, a, that's probably the best way that I would describe it. So with, with my daughter, what ended up happening was as she started to get better, and, what, and I can talk about that in more detail, but I just mean get healthier, as she started to um, join us more in uh, being social and all of these other things and starting to have friends and conversations and all kinds of stuff. Uh, one of the things that I had always wondered about, and I think every parent of a nonverbal child will always wonder about is, do they understand me? Do they know what's going on? Are they processing this? Are they scared? What are they feeling right now? I mean, it's, oh, it's just, it grips your heart. It's, it, it's so much anxiety 
imagining what their experience is like and then not being able to understand what your own child is experiencing. And so it ended up that she was about 10 years old and that was a wonderful year. That was just an absolutely wonderful year. It was 2011. I really believed around that time that we'd be able to put all of this behind us. She was just doing so phenomenally. She was still behind academically, but socially she had made a lot of friends and um, not a lot, but she, you know, she had a couple good friends and she just seemed to be coming um, more and more of a typical 10 year old child. And she had a best friend. And this best friend invited her over for a sleepover. And I mean, whatever would happen to her socially that was was positive. I mean, these were like, this was like winning the lottery. These were like some of the best days of my life. And so she had to get a sleeping bag. And I knew she had a sleeping bag. And we were running late, of course. And I told her to go get it. It was up under her bed. And um, I was waiting in the car. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, getting more impatient. So finally, I come in the house and and I was like, what are you doing? You know, where, where is your sleeping bag? And she's like, I, you know, she wouldn't say where it was. And so I go upstairs in her room and I, and I knew it had been like in her closet or under her bed. And so I'm like, here it is. And I pull it out and it's all crumpled up in the corner under her bed. I'm like, what is it doing under here? I'm like, you, let's go. And she's like, I don't want that one. I want the green one. And the green, green sleeping bag was like a big, camping sleeping bag like a like something you would go take out into the mountains she didn't need that this one was a little mermaid sleeping bag you know little kid sleeping bag and I'm like you don't need the green one I was like come on let's go you grab grab and she just stood there and she would not walk with me and I was getting very angry and I was like what is wrong with you I said let's go and she's like I hate that sleeping bag and I was like you know what you're not too cool for Little Mermaid. I know you're 10 years old, you know, but this is ridiculous. And she goes, that's not why I hate it. And I was, I was standing and I was like, what, what is it? And she goes, oh, it's going to make me cry. And she goes, they took her voice. And I go, I said, what? And she's like, they took her voice. There's nothing scarier than not having your voice. And I almost died (laughs) like I couldn't believe it like my heart dropped just like I'm crying right now I mean tears were just going down my face and I kneeled down by her and I just said and you know what that feels like and she said yeah and she goes there's nothing scarier than not being able to talk and it just I was like, okay, well, we're, this is going right in the garbage. <laughs> you know, and we will never have anything about Little Mermaid ever again. But that moment was the moment I knew that she, she knew. She knew. She knew the whole time, you know, what had been going on. And, and she started to share other moments as well. There was another moment when she was about four years old that we had gone to Disney World. And this was very early on, like this was right around the time that she got diagnosed. And I was still a little bit in denial, I'm sure. And I was all about, well, we're going to still have this, you know, magical family and magical vacation. And we're going to do all these things still. And so um, she and I went to the Magic Kingdom 
and we were on uh, the Dumbo ride and she was nonverbal at the time. And I have a picture of her and there happened to be a, a young woman behind us um, on one of the other elephants who definitely was on the spectrum and also nonverbal from what I could tell with her mother. And it was just this profound moment where I was like, oh my gosh, is that me 10, 15 years from now? And Disney World that year, again, was very difficult because I had no idea if she even knew what was going on, liked what was going on. She couldn't talk. And it was years later um, that she was going through a photo album and she she stopped on one of the pictures and it was the picture of the Dumbo ride. And she goes, I remember that. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, you do? And she goes, yeah. And she pointed to the candy store in the background and she goes, yeah. And then after, after the, the ride, we went over to the candy store and got a lollipop. And it was just those kind of things where I was like, you know, oh my gosh. And, and I, it probably sounds stupid to other people, even saying it out loud now, it seems like, well, why wouldn't she have known, you know, what was going on? But the message at the time, and this was the early 2000s, was that, that people with autism don't necessarily, you know, aren't necessarily uh, taking in what's going on around them, that they are in their own world and they aren't processing what's happening. And so to get confirmation that, oh, she was very present, you know, she was very much participating in everything that we were doing. She just couldn't speak. Um, it was extremely profound. That is... So beautiful. And I want that message to sink in too for, for those of us who want to not only support family who are, you know, dealing with the spectrum or um, dealing with special needs in general. I think that it's so important to recognize that it is, like you said, a spectrum. It's a journey of navigating where are they? What are they understanding? What are they comprehending? And from what you said, it's often more than we recognize you know it's oh yeah we'll ever know right correct correct and I, I some of the best advice I ever got um was from my mom and it, again it was probably several years into the journey and I'm very much a problem solver and I joke all the time that my epitaph is going to say but that doesn't make sense you know I can't let something go that doesn't make sense and I was so invested in recovering her and so invested in understanding what had happened. And I was very much, whether I intended to or not, treating her in, in many ways like a project than a child. Mm. Um, and my mom, I remember, uh, called me out on it and was very much like, this is still your daughter and this is still her childhood. And I understand that all this is going on in the background but you, she is still a child and you need to treat her like a child, not like a project. Ooh. And I, it, yeah. And it was hard to hear, but she was absolutely right. And it's, and it wasn't that my intention was bad or anything like that. You know, when the house is on fire, you want to get out, right? Like, you, you know, okay, this is, we got to deal with this. But I do say, I, I would absolutely say to any parents, young parents listening right now who may have just been recently diagnosed, don't lose sight of that. Yes, you do have a lot of work to do. Yes, there is going to be all this. But don't forget to be present with them as a child. They're still a child. They're still there. They're still, they still want to do all the other things that little kids do. You know, and that's throughout their whole life as well. Don't look at the disability all the time. Don't look at what it is that they can't do. It sounds so cliche, but, but focus on what they still can do and what you can engage with them because you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll get too wrapped up in your heartache and your journey and your mission and you'll miss it and you will regret it. That's beautiful. 
Uh, so that kind of leads me into more of the the systematic side. What sort of system do they have set up for those dealing with vaccine injuries? How do they support parents, children, family? Is it, um, you know, sometimes I think that those of us who are part of the freedom movement and wanting to make sure that we have medical freedom, are some of our biggest questions are, is it really difficult to navigate the system? Are they making it more easy or easier? What is, what is that like? Uh, well, I don't mean that. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's like the crux of the issue before, like I mentioned with autism, is it mental or medical? The crux of the issue with the vaccine debate is not about the merit of vaccines. It's just so, it, it's so funny that the conversation has been so orchestrated to um, move it away from what it's actually about. The question is not whether or not we should vaccinate. We're not there yet. The question is, do we have a system in place for us as consumers of vaccines to be sure that if something happens to us, that we and our children are safe and protected and valued? Does, do we have anything in place to ensure uh, that everybody matters in this process? And the, absolute, the answer to that is a resounding uh, largest possible no that there could be. So the mission of people who are quote unquote labeled anti-vaccine, which is very unfortunate because 99% of them are not, is to change the system. Can you give me a system that I can trust to vaccinate in? Because that's what, that's what happened and that's, that's what people don't understand. So here's the deal. In the late 1970s, there was a swine flu outbreak. And as a result of that outbreak, they rushed a vaccine to market, very much kind of like what we're seeing right now. Uh-huh. And they gave everybody the vaccine. As soon as it came out, they, they did not do the proper long-term testing. They did not do animal studies, all the things that they were supposed to do. And inevitably, about 4,000 people, I believe it is, somewhere around there, ended up having very profound neurological damage and even death. And so there were naturally a ton of lawsuits as a result of that. Well, by the time that all started unfolding around the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, the pharmaceutical industry uh, was not having it. They were angry. And they went to the Reagan administration and they said, hang on a second, time out. There was this outbreak. You guys came to us to make this product. We did it hurt people. And now we're left holding the bag. And now we're being sued, you know, millions and millions of dollars we've got to pay out. And we're not doing this anymore. So if you don't protect us with liability protection, we're not doing this. No more vaccines. Now, I always like to be a very fair person. And I don't think that that's an unreasonable argument. I really don't. What ended up happening, though, was not the right response. The right response in that situation should have been, you know what, you're absolutely right. And in the event that there is a pandemic again, or there's some outbreak, and we have to release a vaccine into the world, knowing that we haven't been able to test this properly, and that there's a potential for damage, and we as the United States government ask you to do that, we've got your back. We will handle that. We will be the ones to handle the claims. That's what should have happened. That's not what happened. What ended up happening was they got blanket liability protection for all vaccines forever in any context. And that was 
passed in 1986 or 1988. It was called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act, and it established the National Vaccine Compensation Injury Act or program. So now, ever since that point in time, in the late 1980s, every single vaccine that comes to market has a tax on it. Every time you go get a vaccine, there is a tax. That tax goes into a fund. And in the event that you or your child is injured by a vaccine, you have to sue the United States government. You go to the, the vaccine court is the nickname for it. And in vaccine court, there is no discovery. You do not get to bring Merck or GlaxoSmithKline or anybody else to court. You don't get their papers. You don't get their science. Nothing. The court is 12 special masters is what they're called. And they are appointed by the U.S. government. And they will look at your case using U.S. funded science to determine whether or not you were hurt. And then if you were hurt, if, they, if the evidence is overwhelming that yes, indeed you were hurt, you pay yourself and you pay yourself from the, the taxes that you paid on the vaccines. So it is a very bad system, uh, to put it lightly. It is absolutely stacked against the consumer. It has created... Um, this triangle of the medical industrial complex, which would be the doctor who gave it to you, liability free, the pharmaceutical comp company who made it, liability free, and the United States government, in essence, liability free, since consumers are actually the ones paying for any compensation they get. So you have that, that alliance, that medical triangle there, that medical industrial complex funding all of their own science to determine what happened to you and then you pay yourself if they agree that well yeah that actually did happen it is so stacked against the consumer it's not even funny it's it's outrageous i mean it's it's un-american there's there's no words for it to properly explain what we've allowed to happen as a result so primarily what we need to do and what I advocate for and the people that I've come to know in the last 20 years, what we're really fighting for is to either abolish that system or it is to radically change that system and put parameters around it that are responsible. Um, we, number one, I do not believe that any vaccine that has been allotted plenty of time for proper animal studies, long-term studies, um, et cetera, should be allowed to have liability protection. This, the, the MMR has been on the market forever. They have plenty of time to determine whether or not that vaccine is safe. Um, why they get liability protection is only because it's mandated by certain states and you know, I believe every state at this point. So we have to fix the system. And until the system is fixed, um, this, this problem isn't going to go away. Because what it has done is it's created a situation for the pharmaceutical company where there's no reason for them to have restraint. I mean, if you think about it from their perspective, since the 1980s, they've been able to create a product. They are the most powerful lobby in the world is the pharmaceutical lobby. Lobby every state, every politician to get it onto a mandated childhood vaccine schedule so that everybody has to have it. They get to, they get to mandate a consumer base. 
and they can never be sued for it, no matter what happens. And look at our vaccine schedule right now. That's not a coincidence that that is happening or that there's 200 vaccines in the pipeline right now. We have to have industry restraint and we don't have it. So this is, <laughs> this is the first time that I have recorded a podcast standing up. I'm at like a desk that I can stand up and I'm so grateful because it gets me so riled up to hear <laughs> you explain this. And yeah. you know, it, it like I have to intentionally take deep breaths because it is, it's unconstitutional. It's unjust. Yes. And, yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. And even so now kind of moving into today, 2020, while we're Mm -hmm. recording this, it's literally in the midst of the COVID quarantine and we are seeing the vaccine controversy space. It's, I mean, everybody's, uh, I want to say awake, but not every, like, you know, I don't know where people are. Getting awake, right? Yeah. There's there's a lot of discussion about it. And I want to reiterate, I like that you say when we advocate it's not a stop taking vaccines. It's not a vaccine versus not vaccine group. It's could we get some legislation that protects us? Or yes. could we, let's do that first. Yeah. Or let, let's <laughs> consider the schedule. Let's consider these things because I, you know, I want to, I want to trust that there are good doctors, you know, there are really, really good doctors that go into this wanting to take care of people, but I mean, is there a system? Are they being told to do a certain thing? Are they being sure? Yeah. Sure. And you know, my brother's a doctor, um, and we've talked about this at length. Doctors are running a medical practice. They're seeing so many patients every day. They're not sitting and poring over scientific studies with regularity. They're really, really not. So they're listening to the people above them and then the people above them, and trusting their leadership that they're being given the right information. You know, I'm an educator. It's the same thing, right? So it trickles down. Um, so there's this sacred trust that exists that this is the right thing to do. For example, you know, like I was saying, one of the things that we, the one thing that we need to do immediately is to actually change the system. But here's another thing that we need to do. If you look at almost any vaccine study for when it is going to be put to market, and you look at the bottom of the study, there's a phrase that's often put at the bottom of the study that says, uh, simultaneous vaccination is usually incompletely studied at time of licensure. And that's extremely significant because, for example, maybe that individual vaccine that the pharmaceutical company has produced and put to market has been rigorously tested for safety. Let's, let's, let's say they're telling the truth and it is overwhelmingly a very, very safe product. But that statement, that disclaimer tells us something very important. And that means that, okay, but what about in combination with the other vaccines? And what about the other vaccine? And what about the other vaccine? So there's so many variables right now that have never been studied. So when children go in in a real world setting, they're not getting one vaccine with rare exception. They're not getting one vaccine at a time. They're getting two, three, four injections that could have up to maybe seven different, eight different, nine different viruses. That combination has never been studied for safety. Never. Because there's too many variables now between the amount of people, uh, the different products. Your, your doctor, your pediatrician might have picked a vaccine from GlaxoSmithKline. Your other doctor, or a different doctor down the road might be using one from um, Wyeth. You know, there's so many variables now, but those variables are not being considered. Um, 
So, you know, I, I forgot if I think I'm off, te- off your question. Yeah, that's here. Okay. Mm-hmm. I also, I even wanted to add to that. I recently saw a panel discussing the fact that not only are they not tested in accordance with each other, but different companies, you know, aren't testing together the result of their vaccines being used together. And they were asking the expert at this specific panel, what to do if they're doing two different vaccines that they know haven't been tested together from different companies. And the woman suggested that they do the vaccines in different arms. And like the, the, the way that that, I don't know, like I'm not a doctor once again, but the, our bodies don't work that way. And like, yeah, it doesn't go right arm, left arm. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's pretty obnoxious it. to be it's, honest it, with it you. Is, Right. It's absolutely crazy to me that we as a society are taking that advice without saying, hold on, like that our bodies are going to use those together. It's not like we're going to keep it separately in those terms. I think what's interesting, and and again, I certainly don't want to say that this experience with COVID um, has been a blessing, but I used to say as recently as a few months ago, before any of this happened, I used to say until the net is cast more widely where everybody is affected by this corrupt system. We're not going to get anywhere. The, the pool of people that are fighting this are parents of disabled children. I, they're working parents. They're taking care of a child that's brain injured in many cases. They're, and they're taking, on, they're taking on the medical industrial complex of the United States government, pharmaceutical industry, and the medical community by themselves from a computer at their house. Um, until consumers on a much, much broader scale are forced into the system and actually become affected by it, we're alone And so fascinatingly, what we're seeing right now, what I've seen over the last month with so many different posts on Facebooks and videos being passed around is that people are waking up and they're like, wait a minute, Bill Gates wants me to get a vaccine that, you know, he just went on CNN and said he knows that 700,000 people are going to have a bad, bad reaction or die. And he's asking for liability protection hold on. So there's this, there's this awakening happening right now. And I've been contacted more from people that I didn't even know paid attention to me, even in my own family um, in the last month than I ever have prior. People going, hey, hasn't, isn't this what you've been talking about? Hey, wait, can you explain more about the vaccine court to me? This, So it's, it's frustrating in some ways, but it's also I hate to use this word. I'm using it in context, exciting in some ways, only because the more people that become informed about this, the more possible it's going to be that we can actually impact it and and create some meaningful change. So if there's any good, good lining in this, it's that. Right. I agree. I think that education is truly the, the beginning of this completely. So and once again, I don't know how many times I've said it. This is not medical advice. You're not a doctor, nor am I. But I, I would love your recommendation for parents who are researching vaccines. Now, you've already talked about some great recommendations to parents who may have already had a kid that has been diagnosed with autism, or even you've given recommendation for what we need to do as like advocates to try to change the system. But like, what about the single, you know, somebody who's listening, what do we, what do they do? Should they ask questions? What, how do they make informed decisions? 
Oh gosh, you know, that's such a loaded question and I wish I had a good answer. I really, really don't, you know, it's gotten so hostile. Um, and you're running the risk of losing your pediatrician, right? They're going to kick you out of their practice. And um, there's all sorts of obstacles now being put in place to make it so difficult for you to question. I would always say, and I, I would stand by this, is to trust your gut. I would absolutely research, research, research both sides, both sides. The most important thing we can do, and this is what I did for years, is try to prove myself wrong. Nobody wants to be right about this. You know, this, this is not something to be happy about. I, I need people to understand that the idea that this happened to my child, that this is at least in part responsible to why she had uh, a brain swelling event, which she did. That's not negotiable. She suffered from a condition called encephalopathy. The idea that I buckled her up, put her in the car, drove her, and held her down and paid someone to do this to her and that there's nothing I can do about it because we didn't know that this happened until after we passed the statute of limitations. So we will never, ever, 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 ever be able to either have some sort of lawsuit, have some sort of discovery against the, the companies that were, you know, that, that were involved in the products that were injected into her. We will have nothing, nothing. This is a horrible answer. You know, this is a, um, an absolutely horrible answer. So I worked very, very hard for years to prove myself wrong. I didn't want to be right about this. Um, and I, I kept coming back to the same conclusion over and over again. So I would say to anybody listening, um, if you are on the fence or if you absolutely think every vaccine is a bad vaccine and there's no reason for a vaccine, look for information to prove yourself wrong. And likewise, if you believe this lady's nuts, they've proven this over and over again, look for information to prove yourself wrong. And that information is where you're going to get good questions. And it's going to be the things like I was saying before, well, what happened? Well, I see that this vaccine is studied by itself, but what about the five you want to give them at once? Where's that study? It's going to open the door, but you still have to be prepared that questions are not being well-received right now, like at all. So it takes a special doctor, it takes a special practice, if you will, that's going to be open-minded to that. But you need to be prepared that challenging them or even asking to space it out anymore is, is very likely not going to be welcomed. And you, you have to decide at the end of the day, are you willing to get fired from a pediatric practice? Are you willing to go a different route because you believe that this is the right thing to do for your child? And, um, and only every individual parent can answer that. They, they, they really can. But unfortunately, that's the way that it is right now. It's just not safe to question vaccines right now. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great recommendation to try to prove yourself wrong. Um, I know that when I personally went into starting to research vaccines, um, it was, you're right. It's, it's terrifying as a mom because you like the idea of a doctor telling you one thing and you questioning it. Of course, whether you are, I hate the word anti-vax or pro-vax, like whatever, like whatever side of the fence you're on, even though I hate those labels, um, everybody wants to take care of their kids, right? Like right. every single person making those decisions. And if we all recognize that from the very outset, like this doctor, even even if he is hostile toward our, your question, he does. I mean, he, your doctor, woman, man, whatever, he he does care about your child. 
And likewise, we care about our children. And so even if you like come at it from that perspective, hopefully that can help lessen the, the hostility. Uh, but I know for me personally, we, like I said, I started, I read your book. I read a book called the vaccine friendly plan because for a while I considered mm-hmm. a, a schedule, like a stretched out schedule, you know, and I really, that's a book that I can include in the show notes. And in fact, it brings me to my next question. Uh, what kind bo- what books, documentaries, podcasts, websites have been especially helpful or interesting to you on your journey? So it's funny that you mentioned that book because actually Jennifer Margulis, um, she's a friend of mine. She, um, actually wrote one of the blurbs on the back of my book, um, recommending it and so forth. And Paul Thomas did as well. So I, I, I know them well. I would absolutely recommend that book. I think she does a phenomenal job. Uh, so does Paul Thomas with, with the moderate, you know, the moderate middle, which is where the majority of us are, which is, it's very difficult to say, looking at the science and even just looking at society in general, that vaccines don't quote unquote work. And I want to say that word in quotes, because you have to define what work means. And that sounds silly, but it's true. What is that? Is it, is it works in the sense that you're temporarily protected? Does it work over a lifetime? All sorts of stuff. But it'd be very difficult to say that they, they haven't had some sort of effect in preventing infectious disease. Um, however, the bigger question is at what cost? And do we have the proper science in place to determine over the long term and for, for vulnerable individuals what that is? And that's not necessarily the case. So vac- the vaccine-friendly plan, what I thought they did a really nice job was, was explaining each of the vaccines and then being able to say, um, being able to, to say, here's why we would recommend this one, here's why we wouldn't, this is what we think would be responsible, here's some things to consider, and so forth. Um, so I, I really do highly recommend that book. Um, that's probably in, in terms of what when to vaccinate, when not, like that's probably the only one that comes to mind right now, to be honest with you. Yeah. There's other books that I ha- would recommend for people to read if they're more interested in like the historical perspective of all of this and, and the epidemic itself and, and all kinds of stuff. So I yeah, can certainly maybe, recommend those. Maybe you can uh, email me a list of any books that you found helpful along the journey as they come to you. And I can just include those in the show notes sure. page sure. on my website. Yep. Yeah. Because even me that, and it's interesting you say that a lot of people have been reaching out to you uh, even before the COVID-19 epidemic and whatnot, they, a lot of my friends, and it's always through private messaging, which I get because people are so afraid to necessarily put out that they're questioning this or like starting to research this. But I get tons of messages that say, what do you recommend? You know, what are you doing? And so I always tell people we've decided I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and we've decided not to do vaccines thus far. And for me, I have a book also that is called uh, what's it called? The Unvaccinated Child. And that's another book I'm going to put in the show notes as well, just because it's a book that goes through every single disease that we vaccinate against. I mean, measles to meningitis to whatever. Um, and it has a page explaining like what the symptoms are and uh, when to, you know, seek professional help or like what at, po- at what point do you need to like, at what point can you handle chickenpox? We can probably handle that right. at home. Like, that's something that we are able to work with. Meningitis, we're not going to mess with that. We need Western medicine. We need to get to a doctor probably fast, you know, if right. that's something that right. we ever uh, encounter. And so that's another book that I appreciate as far as, like, the specifics of feeling like we could 
figure out what to do with each. Um, yes. Yes. And just a quick comment on that, if it's okay. I also mentioned in the book and, um, and I'm, I've been very curious about this for a long time. You know, the United States, we do mandate vaccines, but many, many, many other first world countries um, do not. Um, so for example, Spain, Italy, um, other countries in Europe, they do not mandate vaccines. They do not do so because they believe in the autonomy of a person's individual freedom to be able to determine what they want to inject into their body. That's also from the Nuremberg Code. Like this is not an outrageous idea. In fact, even one of our founding fathers, Dr. Benjamin Rush, um, he wanted to put into the Constitution of the United States medical freedom. And I just shake my head all the time. Why, why, why didn't they do that? Um, but they didn't. But nonetheless, it is, it is the case that in many other places around the world, vaccines are voluntary. That said, I'm a Spanish teacher. I can speak Spanish. I lived in Spain. Um, I reached out to a journalist over in Spain who writes about this a lot because they're having a problem with Gardasil over there, like many places. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, okay, so since people can choose whether or not to vaccinate, what does that look like in Spain? And he said, well, we still have 95% compliance. He said, we still have 95% compliance, even though it's voluntary. Um, he said, but we have a very different schedule than you guys. And he explained what they do. And it's so logical. And I don't understand why we can't do it here. With the volume of vaccines that is now on the market, they created categories. And the first category is life-threatening. You really should have these. So like you mentioned before, meningitis. You know, that is not a disease people want to mess around with, especially, you know, when children are young or when not children are like teenagers and so forth. That might be a vaccine that would fall into that category, right? So they have vaccines that it's like, this is something you really don't want to take your chances with. And then they have a middle category, which is, you know what, this is, this is, this is kind of your call, you know, like, you know, this is, here's what's going to happen to you if you get this disease. Here's what's going to happen to you, if, you know, if you don't. Um, these are ones that, you know, it's 50-50. And then there's a final category that's called a lifestyle category, which would be if you're traveling or, you know, depending on what's going on in your life. Exactly. And in, in the category amongst the most highly recommended, considered very serious, don't want to mess around with, they have 95 percent compliance, 95% compliance rate. And it goes back to what you were saying is why? Well, because parents actually don't want to put their children in danger. They want to participate in a system where they know that they're taking the most responsible risk and that in the event it still doesn't work out, that they will be taken care of and be able to have justice. And if we can do that here in the United States, we will have the same experience. But until they do those things, you're going to continue to see the revolt. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Because, yeah, I think that sometimes that can be over go over some people's heads where people hear me say, well, I'm not choosing to vaccinate, but you're right. If the system was different, if there was not, you know, handcuffs on my hands about like making that decision, I might be able to kind of, like you said, change my mind or change my mind as I go. And that's exactly what we've decided to do is figure out, okay, yeah, if we're traveling, we live on a, you know, a homestead farm, like maybe we'll have to work with different, we have to kind of figure out what are we subjected to what could we deal with and that is an informed thinker if if i can make yes. informed decisions along the way yeah i i mean there's no reason that i like i don't want to so quote go against western medicine i believe that there is a place for it i believe that they are looking out for us um i do believe that they want 
good for us. But right now the system that they're in is making it almost impossible for them to do good <laughs> in that. It is, it is. And it, it really, and this is the thing as well that we're, we're, people are waking up to. And I don't say this lightly, I'm not being sarcastic at all. The current vaccination system, the way it is structured, where, you, where it's mandated and you really can't do anything about it if something happens to you. And likewise, nobody really cares. I'll be very honest with you. Um, there's a mindset that if you, are, if you are hurt or injured because of a lack of a vaccine, you are a victim and someone we should feel very sorry for. But if you are a person who is injured or killed because of a vaccine, that's an acceptable loss. Mm. And no one feels obligated to honor those people or children, no one has ever reached out and said, thank you, um, or let alone acknowledge them. So it, we're in a war on infectious disease. And what we're saying is if you're killed by friendly fire, you don't matter. And as far as I know, in any war, if a United States soldier is killed, whether it be by a, you know, a, a gun misfiring or whether it's enemy fire, we still honor them equally, but we do not. And so Number one, we have to honor the people and acknowledge the people and take care of the people who have sacrificed by getting a vaccine for the greater good and it didn't work out for them. But then we also need to realize that this is, a, this is medical communism. And, I, and again, I don't say that lightly. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Communism is at, a, at its core the idea that the good over, is more important than the individual. And that the greater good, every society trumps you as an individual. And what you've seen in the quote unquote anti-vax movement is all the individuals that were thrown away and not acknowledged saying, you know what, maybe I don't matter to you, but my daughter mattered to me. Mm. And you're going to continue to add to that group of injured people until finally there's enough that this will change. And that's unfortunate, but that's how history goes. It's all, you can't throw away a group of people and just say, yep, whatever. No, nope, it's too bad. We don't care about you. You are a sacrifice for the greater good. Your life didn't matter. Your child didn't matter. That's never going to fly. Never. And it's not. And that's what we've seen over the last 20 years. Thank you so much for just your, your passion for and can I, can I be one to say thank you for being a soldier in this and, and for your daughter, really, truly, for her experience, for her um, inspiring you. You have, have done something beautiful with her story. And I, I can only pray, I'm a person of faith, so I can only pray that, that people are waking up to, to what's going on. And I do want to, of course, I ask this question all the time, and this might be totally off subject to what we're talking about or on subject, however you want to take it. But my whole blog, my podcast, everything is about living an abundant life, a more abundant life. So I just want to ask you, what does it mean? What does it mean to you to live an abundant life or have an abundance mindset? Well, that took me a really long time. Um, I think it's actually really appropriate for the situation. As I alluded to before, um, gosh, I was so narrow-minded and so focused on, you know, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to fix this system and I'm going to, you know, I, I was going to fix everything, right? I was the fixer. And, and so I was missing out in a lot of ways um, on, on the rest of things going on around me. And so now... And writing the book was really, really, really healing, really, really healing. Um, 
Now I have a much different mindset and, and be, having an abundant life is learning to come to a place of acceptance and, and understanding that accepting where we are in our journey and accepting that maybe my daughter's you know, brain injury isn't going to improve anymore for the rest of her life. That doesn't mean that I accept that someone did something terrible to her or, or, you know, or something terrible happened to her, but that I'm at peace with where we are right now. Um, that's how I feel like I have an abundant life that I can, I can breathe. I can look around me and still be so grateful for everything that I have to be grateful for. Um, that I, I, I change my perspective. I don't look at her anymore and see what she can't do. I look at her and, and rejoice in all of the things that she can. Um, and that would be my advice again to everybody who's starting along this journey, maybe recently diagnosed it's going to be hard and that's going to sound really superficial and it might even be angering um, at first because I know it was for me, but it's just really, really true. There's, there's still so much beauty and so much good. And if you're open to it, this journey will allow you to experience and meet, uh, to do and know people and things you've never imagined. I mean, honestly, the idea that I got to write a book it's crazy to me, you know, like that, that, that actually happened. I worked for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for a little while. I worked for a Kennedy. Like how, what? Like <laughs> I could have never imagined any of this in my life. So would I want it to happen so I could have those experiences? No. But if you're open to where you are, if you can be present and at peace with wherever you are in the moment, life will bring you amazing things. It really, really will. Perfect. Perfectly articulated. That is right on. <laughs> if there was a right answer. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and of course, Julie, where can everyone find and connect with you? And where can they get your book? So it's so funny. So my book, as far as I know, it's on Amazon. I know it was in Barnes and Noble for a little while. Um, because there were a couple of times I'd go in and see it on the shelf and just laugh, you know, <laughs> like giggle or one of my friends would grab it. I don't know if it's still there. Um, definitely online. You could order it there, but definitely on Amazon. Um, and then the title of that is an unfortunate coincidence. Yes. Yes. An unfortunate coincidence. Um, I'd love to people to write, uh, reviews. Reviews are very helpful and I've had some really good ones so far. So I do appreciate that. Um, and then I don't have like, I don't have like an author page. Well, I, I take that back. There's a book page that actually uh, Jennifer Margulis, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the vaccine friendly plan author, she runs that page for me. So you can connect with me there um, on an unfortunate coincidence. And then, you know, I have my regular Facebook page. Um, people can connect with me there. I'm pretty open to friend requests and things like that. So, um, but yeah, awesome. pretty accessible. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. And if anybody wants to leave a comment on the show notes page or on, um, on the podcast's uh, notes, I can absolutely refer any questions your way if they come to me. And thank you so much for doing this, for sharing. It was, again, like I said, it riled me all up, but it's... It, but I'm it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you gave so much good information. And uh, practical information, things that people can actually be doing instead of, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with sharing memes and quotes online, but more practically researching, researching and asking questions and digging a little deeper and trying to support people like you who are advocating on, um, on our, all of our behalfs for freedom. 
Yep. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you so much. This was very unexpected and really appreciated. And I'm always very flattered when somebody found something um, meaningful or powerful out of something that I could write. It, it really it really makes it very special for me. So I, I, I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Awesome. Stay safe, Julie. Yes, you too. Thank you. I want to thank Julie again for her willingness to share her experience and research with us. If you're hearing my words, if you've listened this far, I'm hoping that you're feeling both concerned and empowered. Call me a conspiracy theorist, but something isn't right here. And we are at a place in history where we need to start asking hard questions. I fully believe that mothers everywhere, whether they follow the full vaccine schedule or none at all, are truly concerned for their children's safety and well-being. This is not an anti-vaccine podcast. This is simply a podcast that seeks to call attention to a problem. Here is that problem. We need more and better information on vaccines and how they react to other vaccines and environmental toxins. We need vaccine companies to be held liable for the ingredients they choose to utilize. We need medical freedom to make decisions as mothers, as humans, and as free citizens. There are far too many stories like Julie's. There are far too many people who have been hushed for wanting to share their stories. There are far too many questions left unanswered and absolutely far too many stories left unjustified. I am sharing this interview for two main goals. One, I hope we can continue a positive conversation about this on a larger scale and preserve our medical freedoms. And two, I pray that individuals listening to this can be reminded that every story is beautiful and every story is worthwhile. Every single story is meaningful. God sees you. He knows you. And there is a reason you have been given breath today. Please use the gift of life fully. And while you're at it, stop and say a prayer for anyone raising a child with autism or other special needs. In fact, join me now if you're willing. Lord, I ask you for your all-encompassing peace to overwhelm all mothers, every mother who is trying to raise their children to be the best they can be, the healthiest they can be, every mother or father who is navigating trying to make hard decisions for their children, every mother or father who has a child on the autism spectrum, every person who is anxious or scared or feeling alone. Lord, I ask that you be with these mothers, these fathers, I also ask that you would be part of our journey toward medical freedom and justice for those who have endured vaccine injuries. God, I ask that you would send out mighty angels to fight these battles for us. We want to raise healthy children. We want to glorify you. Open our eyes, God. Make us wise. Make us strong. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. Thanks again, friends. Until next time, be well. Thanks for listening to the Permaculture Princess podcast. For show notes or more information, please visit www.permacultureprincess.com or find me on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or Pinterest at Permaculture Princess. 
I do want to mention again that none of the advice or research here is intended to diagnose or treat, and you should always consult your own healthcare team when making changes to your health routine. If you have found any value from this podcast, please subscribe so that you can get updates, consider leaving me a review, and also share this on any of your social media platforms. I am fueled on words of affirmation, and I greatly appreciate your feedback. My hope is that you find blessings throughout your day and that you discover a more abundant landscape and life.